move this? Yeah. I like to walk around, so I don't want to trip it on anything. Thank you for having me today. Uh, as I was introduced, my name is Brady. Uh, you can call me Brady. Uh, it's just like the Brady Bunch. Uh, I have a beautiful wife in the back there, Nitza. It's, uh, I need to spell her name. It's N-I-T-Z-A. So, uh, and my beautiful daughter, Ruby, and my wonderful five-year-old son, Lucius, is around here somewhere. I guess he got lost in the activity. Um, I am in the United States Navy. Um, I am the command chaplain for a ship called the USS Arlington. USS Arlington is named after Arlington County, uh, which is a living memorial that the United States Navy is doing, something new. The USS New York is a part of that too, for the attacks on the Pentagon, attack on the Pentagon in 9-11. And so our ship is a living memorial for that, and uh, we are an LPD. So our mission, we have a mustard crew of about 410 on any given day. And really what we do is we pick up 600 Marines and we float around the world waiting for trouble. Or we go where they tell us to go. And that's our mission. The P in the LPD stands for people. So good way to remember it. So it's the USS Arlington LPD 2-4 if you're interested. Um, thank you for having me this morning, for uh, just allowing me to preach here, give God's word to you. This is, I don't know if you know this, but it's a very unique place where you find yourselves as a church. Um, I walk on board a ship every morning, and it is the mission field. And you are in a mission field in this church, even if it's on Sunday, and even if it's when the school is not in session. You have a banner, or they have a banner, a National School of Excellence in here. And it's really amazing it's a blessing that you're allowed to meet as a church in a civic institution. Be thankful for that. It's, it's a unique place for you. So before I get into the Word, uh, I want to just, uh, most people really wonder, as a chaplain, you know, what, what do you need? You know, a lot of people will ask me, what do you need? What can we do for you? Two real quick things. The first, of course, because I am a pastor before I am a chaplain. Prayer. How many of you expected that answer? Okay, most people did, right? Prayer. Chaplains and the military need your prayers. Uh, again, it is the mission field. Please do not consider it a floating church. Any of you that have been in the Navy, you know, or been in the military, it's the mission field. Second thing that I will ask you, most people will believe, well, Please don't take this the wrong way as I watch them, as people watch the news and they hear all the stories about chaplains and things that we are, uh, problems that we're having and things like that. That's not where the fight is. It's not. The fight is with the younger people coming in the military. Their hearts and their minds in this culture. That generation, the millennial generation, some of you are in it and younger, the gospel needs to be shared with them. Because I'm going to tell you, before they get into the military, they're hurting. They're hurting before they get there. So, as a church, live that out. Live out the mission. 
Again, I bring that up first because a lot of people ask that. And usually, uh, if I were in uniform, people would want to hear some sea stories or things like that. No, I don't want to do that. Uh, there are plenty there. If you ever want to hear them, I can invite you to my house for dinner and you hear stories all night. But those are two things I just want to throw out there as a chat. Um, let me open us in prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your grace is just amazing. That you would just shine your grace on your creation for one more day. Just to see a sunrise. Just for your church to meet together. Just to worship you. Lord, whatever we do, it all comes back to your grace. And realizing your grace goes back to your glory. And our lives are here to glorify you. And I just thank you for that again. I thank you for your patience and your loving kindness. Father, I just ask that you would uh, just settle our hearts and minds. There's so many people here today, Lord, and I wish I could sit down with each one of them and encourage them and just study their souls about worries that they have in their lives, heartache that they might have, just those wounds of the soul that can only be healed by you. And I ask that just for the next 30 minutes or so, or just the time that we meet together as a church, that you would just give us peace and patience and help us just to be settled just to focus on you. I just pray for the, just the continued healing of this church. I pray for Pastor Rodriguez and his family that over this next week that you would just continue to give him peace and rest. And I just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As chaplains, we go through a lot of training. We go through a lot of training just to start the job as a chaplain. And one of the wonderful uh, places that we get to go to do this training is a beautiful Army base known as Fort Jackson in South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. And it's nothing but overgrown grass and pine trees. If you've never been there, it's a great place to see, but uh, only if you have to go there. But uh, about a while back, I was attending the U.S. Navy's chaplain school there. Our chaplain school is for six weeks. Um, in that segment of our school, we get to do a lot of G.I. Joe stuff. We get to do a lot of, around a lot of, uh, we don't get to fire them, but we get to be around a lot of guns and artillery and tanks and fun stuff like that. And we are being trained by Marines down there while we're there. And uh, most of those days when we were at chaplain school are not filled with that kind of excitement. We have about four weeks that are just academic kind of stuff, teaching us how to minister in a civic context. But we have a couple of those weeks um, where we're, we get to do PT and we get to do inspections and uniform stuff that actually makes us feel like we're in the Navy. And, they, and we have kind of an individual that oversees that part, and that is Gunnery Sergeant. That's what we know him as. My Gunnery Sergeant was a Christian man. He was fantastic. Um, his name is Gunnery Sergeant Martin Wharton. Lived, uh, I can't speak enough about him. Um, but if you've been in the military, or even if you've watched movies, you know that a gunnery sergeant has a lot of experience. And having that title 
That is the face of the Marine Corps. When you think about the Marine Corps, that's a gunnery sergeant. And they live up to it. You don't get there without having experience and just a lot of wisdom. You hear it in their voice, and you see it in how they conduct themselves. Uh, most of our company knew that uh, Mark Gunnery Sergeant Morton was a Christian. He, he brought his Bible in, and he would uh, carry it around with him, and he would be at some of our devotionals. We had daily devotional every day, and they knew that. And so they were very interested in finding out more about it. And one day he got to speak. And in his thick southern accent and very raspy voice, because he had at one time been an instructor at Paris Island, so you can imagine what that was like for him. So he didn't have much voice left after that. Um, he gave us a lecture and told us these things. He didn't want us there if we couldn't be with people that are hurting. He didn't want us there if we couldn't handle the stress of combat or the operational tempo. And he didn't want us there if we were uncomfortable seeing Marines die. He was just straight up. The guy had been in Afghanistan, he'd seen a lot of pain. And he was just straight. And pretty much after he got done telling us this, the room was total silence. And he wasn't saying any of these things to be mean. He wasn't saying them um, to hurt our feelings. He wasn't telling us any of these things on a personal note. He was telling us these things from his experience, his time in the field, and his love for the Marine Corps. He was telling us what it took for us to be chaplains to Marines, to sailors, to guardians. Most of you, if you don't know, Navy chaplains serve three branches. We serve the U.S. Navy, we serve the Marine Corps, and we serve the Coast Guard. So in our careers, we bounce in and out of those three branches. Marine Corps is usually the, the most fun, I would say. Um, but that's what he was telling us. He was giving us a serious message for a serious calling. In a similar way, Jesus was up front with the crowds that followed him and with those that were closest to him. He often told them that following him would not be easy. He often talked about the challenges of being his disciple. He told them sometimes they wouldn't have any place to sleep, they wouldn't be honored in their hometowns, and that people would hate them. He didn't just tell them what would happen to them, but in the Gospels we see Jesus tell the crowds what it takes. What his expectations were, what people would experience if they followed him. And in the book of Luke, we're going to be looking at the book of Luke this morning, for those of you that have in Bibles. We read what Jesus says to his disciples, what they must do to follow him. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14. Now, while you're finding the text, Luke chapter 14, I just want to encourage you as a church, bring your Bibles. Something I see on board the ship every day, this word has the power to change lives. Carry this with you. This is what the Reformation did for us. People died for this. And we have a privilege in America of having, on average, only five Bibles per household. Bring your, bring your Bible. Find one like this you can carry to work. Stuff in your pocket. Luke chapter 14. 
Uh, if you have one of the Bibles that we had out here on the on the table there, it's page 568. No, there's nothing wrong with looking up the page number in a Bible. You don't have to memorize every book of the Bible. Just get the glossary. That's why it's there. Luke chapter 14. Before we look at the verses I'll be talking about today, I want to give a summary so I don't take anything out of context. Now, one thing I want to apologize before I start is Marissa here. Marissa, this year, I didn't lose your name tag, sorry. Uh, I told you verses 25 through 33, but I'm going to, or 28 through 33, I'm going to expand on the text to do 25. So, just like a preacher, to preach more than what he said he was going to do. So, let's take a look uh, at the context of this. Now, let's talk about the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9 through 19 is Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. From chapter 9 through 19, it's all about Jesus going to Jerusalem. And he knew he was going there. Keep that in context. And it's, this is the Word of God. So remember, written by the hand of Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit. God has something to say to us in it. And Luke records all of these events that happened to Jesus while he traveled to Jerusalem. A very long narrative in some of his teaching. For Luke 14 gives us this account of healing and this time with the Pharisees and his followers. Jesus goes into the house of the Pharisee on the Sabbath. And he goes in there for a dinner. Most likely the Pharisee invited him to try to trap him into something. Pretty, pretty evident once you look at the questions that he asks. Uh, he heals a man there Again, it's on the Sabbath, so he heals a man with this thing called dropsy, some swelling. This guy, all we know is that he had this bad case of swelling for some reason. And the Pharisees questioned him about it being lawful to heal him on the Sabbath. And he put them in their place about that, and he gives them some instructions on, on this dinner. When they, when, they have, when they throw this dinner, it seems just very odd when you're reading through it. And he starts talking about when you have a dinner, this is who you invite. And he tells them that if they're going to have a dinner for someone, they should have it for the poor, for the lame, for people that can't repay them for their generosity. And he gives them this lesson. And these, both of these lessons about healing on the Sabbath and this dinner are about humility. So this is working up to the text. Jesus is giving this this lesson on humility. And next, I'm going to say this dude speaks up and says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's a very odd comment, the way Luke records it. Jesus then launches into this parable about another dinner. A man that throws a dinner and everyone turns him down because they're too busy. And Jesus then tells him this parable to demonstrate that those invited weren't willing to sacrifice or pay a personal price to attend the dinner. They were too busy. Um, Luke then changes the scene. Well, I'll pick up the rest of this story in Luke chapter 14, with Jesus being followed by these crowds. Jesus turns and gives them some specific instructions about being his disciple. In addition to his lesson on humility, and this idea of being willing to pay the price, that's the idea behind attending this dinner. He gives the requirements for being his disciple. 
in those, in those two lessons. So it begs the question, or we have to ask the question, what else do we need to do to be his disciple if there's more left in the text? That's the question I'm going to attempt to answer today. If we are to be completely committed to him, what's left for us besides humility and being willing to pay the price? In Luke 25-33 is where we read Jesus' specific instructions to being completely uninhibited so we can be committed to him as a disciple. Let's take a look. Let me go through some points and then we'll take a look at the test. Or the text. The first point, to be a disciple of Christ, our closest relationships, now this is people, our closest relationships, even ourselves, must not inhibit us. They can't keep us from obeying His will for our lives. Relationships with others and our desires, no matter who or what they are, cannot come before Christ. Tough words. Relationships with others. Think in your life. What relationships with others do you have that come, can't come before Christ? It's a strong statement. Look at uh, verse 26 for me. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. And I'm going to read it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's a good text to preach when you're visiting. Right? Strong words from Jesus. Jesus says to be a disciple of his, a person must hate his father, mother, brother, sister, wife, and children. In the Greek text, that's exactly what it says. He also says this thing about even his own soul, his self. Jesus isn't telling us to abandon those closest to us. Many times people have used this text, and you, and you hear it, you hear it when you go to seminary, I'm telling you, Jesus told me everything, and then you see a guy with his wife and children that are suffering because he's gone to seminary. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's not calling us to abandon those around us. We'll get into that a little bit more. Some people translate this word hate as to love less. But that's not really correct. That's not a correct translation. Um, Jesus uses this word hate to cause the listener to think about relationships he or she might have that may hinder being committed to him. Relationships that you might have that hinder you from being committed to them. That doesn't mean you can have relation. You can't have relationships with other people, wife, brother, sister, husband, that walk with the Lord with you and follow Him. He's talking about those that hinder you from following Him. He's calling those that would follow Him to make tough decisions about their relationships value that you put on other individuals, even the value you put on yourself over Jesus. This one's personal, and the decisions we have to make in regard to Jesus putting Him before others in our lives are unique to everyone here. 
In 2005, I was living in Montgomery, Alabama. Before I went into the Navy, uh, the Lord blessed me with uh, just kind of a great story of life and just, I would say, different lives that I've led, but I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe that. I'm not saying that. I was in the business world. I worked for Coca-Cola. I was a sales exec for uh, quite a few years there with them, and I was living in Montgomery, Alabama. I had uh, recently married, um, beautiful home, three-bedroom, two-bathroom home on a pretty good-sized yard. I had a riding lawnmower. It was like Forrest Gump out there. And, you know, a big acorn tree in the back. It was a great life. Great. I uh, had a great job. I was making great money. And as I drew closer to the Lord in my walk, I kept feeling that He wanted myself and my wife to go out west. Now, I'm in Alabama, right, so I'm looking west. West could be Jackson, Mississippi. West could be Dallas, which is a great city. Austin. We didn't know that would be Los Angeles. And I began to sense this calling. I didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't know the details. I didn't know how we were going to get there. But I felt this calling before my wife got the call. My wife was also working for Coca-Cola. Got the call to take a promotion. And they were going to make it a package deal for us. But we didn't know this at the time. We were just living our lives in Alabama, new in our marriage, just doing wonderful things. And I realized if I was going to say I was a Christian, a follower of Christ, I had to submit to it. I needed to live that, saying I was a Christian, and I had to give up my dreams and my desires, my own comfort. My dreams and my desires were to stay in the Southeast. I didn't want to leave the South. I'm a graduate of the University of Tennessee. I wouldn't be able to see all the SEC football games I wanted to see, right? I wouldn't be in the Coca-Cola culture, which is a great Southern culture. When you work for Coca-Cola, you're everyone's best friend. You pay for all the baseball teams. You you know, you kiss babies, you grease palms. It's great. I loved it. I didn't want to leave. I wanted my children to grow up in the South. I wanted to stay closer to friends and family. Those were idols that I worshipped. They were idols in my life. And it took me years to figure that out. And those idols had to be torn down. That was something that I put in front of God. Second thing we see in this text is that to be a disciple of Christ, we must follow Jesus in his example of self-denial and embrace God's will. No matter the cost. Jesus says a person must carry his own cross and pursue him. Take a look at verse 27. Verse 27 reads... Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This verse has been misinterpreted and used incorrectly in the church for I would be willing to guess 2,000 years. Maybe a little bit less if we look at it, the dating. I just want to clear something up with you what carrying your cross or bearing your cross means. Uh, some people will say, oh, I guess it's my cross to bear 
cross you bear is not what you should already be doing. That's kind of a, the overarching statement. Your cross is not being sober. Your cross is not meeting your work or family obligations. Your cross that you bear is not meeting your church obligations. It is not illness. It is not disease. It is not inconvenience. It is not having a bad boss. It is not being unhappy or even being persecuted. Do not buy into the lies of this culture that says you have to always be happy. God is not Santa Claus. But he's not a policeman either. Those things are all legitimate, and we can go through those things, but it's not your cross. As you walk with Christ, and as you grow in Him, and become His committed disciple, He will give you your cross. He will give you your cross. Just like our Father in Heaven gave Him His cross. His cross was His ministry to a dying world. The cross that God gives you will be your ministry to the dying world. Keep that clear. I know that some of you will disagree with that. I'm sorry. I preach. That's what I do. So, that's what the text says. Keep it in mind. Your cross will be heavy and it will be difficult to carry. But here's the thing. God doesn't leave you alone to carry it. It goes back to the confession that you were reading earlier. God gives grace when He gives you a cross to bear. I feel it every day. And if you're bearing a cross right now, I'm with you. I got it. It's, it's hard. But God makes up the difference where we fail. The third thing we see is to be a disciple of Christ we have to have a correct evaluation of the cost of following Jesus. Jesus goes into this parable in the text, verses 28 through 32. Let me read it for you. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We'll cover that text later, that last verse later. How many of you, if you're going to be honest, if you've read this before, how many of you just kind of glaze over? I do every time I read it, every time I study it. Jesus starts talking about this guy building this house and this, this general about raising an army against with 10,000. He's got 20 coming against him. And he gives this picture of these people failing. Just a little tip on reading parables of Jesus. Parables were always... Kind of like if you put up a mirror, it always reflected something in the current text, in the context that he lived in. This is how people, it was very common to use parables, not just for Jesus, they were used in the culture all the time. And they reflected what helped people understand the principle that they were given. 
In this parable, there's this preoccupation with property and wealth. And let me break it down for you. Jesus puts up this king and this farmer on one side. And he puts up this example, this parable, just to break it down. His intention is to break this down and to make a point. They thought, the king and the farmer, they thought they were stronger than they actually were. They would have realized their lack of resources and the need for more to accomplish the task if they had counted the cost. See what he's doing? He's giving them another picture of these self-made men. Remember the context. Jesus is not calling us to just count the cost. He's not calling us to sit around and count what we can, what we have, and what can't be done, what can't be made possible. Many of us, if you're honest, I've been there, I'm there all the time. You know the Lord's calling you to do something, and you're sitting back and you're saying, I can't. I can't see how it's going to work out. I can't see, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. And then you move on, you give up, you move on, you go on like the disciples did. You go back to fishing. You go back to what you know. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. As his disciple, remember that grace thing? We need to ask him for the resources. If we're short, the man building the house, if he's short on materials, the king, short 10,000 men, Jesus is giving this example. My disciples, if you're short on something, ask me to shore it up. Ask me to provide it for you. And I will. And God will. That's what he's saying. That's why he's giving the parable. He's saying, even if it costs you everything, if I'm giving you a mission, let's just use a money example. If I'm giving you a mission and it takes you $100, and you've only got 75 put all the 75 to him. That's what he's asking. That's what he's talking about there. Now, don't take it literally. It's not just about money. It's not. It can be about other things. But that's what he's saying. Take what you have, dedicate it to me, I will make up the difference. That's what he's calling for his disciples. Even if it costs you everything, be committed to me. Don't be like this farmer. Don't be like this king. That's what he's saying in the parable. My last point, to be a disciple of Christ, we have to continually be ready to give up all we have to follow Jesus. Jesus summarizes his whole parable and what he's been talking about. He says a person can't be his disciple if he's not willing to give up his possessions. Take a look at verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Oh, that's a tough one. It's a tough one for Americans. Because when you look at the translation, you agree? That's what he's saying. Any of you that can't give up your material possessions. The greatest fight that I have on a daily basis on board my ship with my sailors 
is the mess is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That is the biggest fight I have. It is nothing short of what John Piper deemed it as hedonism. The desire to be happy, the desire for life to be perfect, to have everything you want. These aren't my words. It's Jesus' words. Now let me clarify the text for you. To be a disciple of Christ, we have to submit every possession to God's will and continually pursue self-denial. Continually pursue self-denial. We lived in L.A., as I mentioned before, before we came here. And when I was finishing up some of my seminary studies and later on, one of the places I worked was on Skid Row. It's the nation's largest Skid Row. If you've seen uh, the movie The Soloist, uh, many people know that movie. I never saw it. Many people know that movie. That's where they filmed it. They filmed it right behind the Union Rescue Mission where I worked. I worked in uh, what's called recovery ministry, working with addicts, uh, alcohol, drugs, anything, you name it, sexual addiction, anything. Anyone that, anything that by the time we saw them pretty much ruined their life and they were hit rock hard by the time they were the rest of the mission. I had two of my friends that worked there, Chaplain Mike and Chaplain Billy. And one night we went to dinner. We had to take constant breaks from this ministry that we were doing there. We just needed just to, just to zone out and discuss things. And Chaplain Billy, a good friend of mine, said something I'll never forget. He said, if there's something in your life that you say, Jesus would never ask me to give that up. That's probably the possession that he desires you to give up. If there's something in your life that you can sit back and say, Jesus would never ask me to give that up. That's probably what he wants you to give up. Family, self, material wealth. Jesus doesn't say not to have these things. Don't misinterpret it. He doesn't say you can't have these things. He does not. He says, be willing to give them up or put them at a lower priority than myself. That's what he says. That's the meaning out of all this text. Put these things at a lower priority than where I am in your life. It's not calling us to be an ascetic, to go live in a cave with no material possessions. I like my couch. I like my TV. I like my movies. I like watching football. I even like watching a little bit of the World Cup. But, Jesus isn't calling us to give those things up, necessarily. He's calling us to prioritize them correctly. Prioritize them to where He is first. In other words, if these things are first in your life, then I'm not. That's what he's saying. Be fully committed to me and be willing to use them for my kingdom and my glory. That's what he's talking about. So some of you are here today and you are where Jesus has called you to be in terms of discipleship. Not, you're not all in a place. Some of you have given things up. Some of you have been have the priorities right. You do. I'm not the pastor that meets up on congregations. Because some of you are following Jesus faithfully. And you're suffering for it. 
if that's where you are, keep praying for your sanctification. Keep praying that God will stretch you more and more. That He will continue to show you where you need to be and the next step that He takes. Just like in all things, He trusts you with one small thing, He'll move you to a bigger thing. Now that bigger thing is not for you. The bigger thing is for God's glory. That's what we need to be serious about. God's glory. Some of you are here today and you might be saying, well, I'm a Christian. I can remember when I prayed the prayer of salvation and I know I'm saved. But Jesus does not come before my relationships. Jesus does not come before my happiness. Many of you are here today and you might have family members that are on the golf course right now. And they say they're Christians. Well, they might be fishing. Which, to be honest with you, if I weren't a Christian, that's where I'd be. I'd be fishing right now. My wife knows it. If that's where you are, we have to confess it. And we have to repent of it. God is not waiting to smack you over the head. He is not going to force you to prioritize. He's not. Jesus did not do forced conversion. He did not go into his disciples' lives and remove things. He taught them the truth and he gave them the choice. Put him first. That's what he desires. He will not force you to follow him. He will not. If that's where you are and you want to be in a place where you put Jesus first, you have to ask God for the help. You have to ask God to be that disciple that you should be. That's the first place where you start, is in prayer. God looks at the heart, and that's what He wants. He will help you reprioritize. He will help you put things first, where they need to be. Don't feel ashamed about it. Just ask God for help. He's waiting for you to do that. Being a disciple is a daily struggle. I have here in my notes, it can be a daily struggle. That's not correct. It is a daily struggle to be a follower of Christ. But God knows where we are. Some of you just might be sitting here saying, well, I don't buy it. I don't buy the text. I don't buy how you've interpreted it. I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. I don't think that's what Jesus wants of me. You have that choice. Again, these aren't my words. Please talk to your elders. Please talk to those that you feel are spiritual guides and ask them. Ask them what Jesus was saying. Look at the text yourself. I'll give you my Bible if you don't have a Bible. Again, he won't force you to be his disciple. He will not. But remember, if he's not first in your life, then something else will be. And it most likely will be yourself. It won't be a material possession. It will most likely be you. You will be first over Jesus. You will be your own idol if Jesus is not first. And I warn you of idolatry. It leads to nothing but brokenness. But Christ is waiting for you to help you be his disciple and live the abundant life he promised. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, just for this great privilege to preach to this church. 
to those that are here. I ask that you would help them see you through the words that I have spoken, that they would not remember me past five minutes from now, that they, they would remember your words and your truth. I ask that you would work in each one of their hearts and minds to make them the disciple that they need to be, the disciple that you saw them be through time and through your divine appointments. I ask that you would just speak to them and remind them of these words of yours, that you would encourage them to go back home this afternoon or sometime this week or sometime in the future to read this Gospel of Luke and to read this text and to just meditate on your words and what you're asking us to do. I just pray for your protection over them. pray that you would watch over them, bless them, and keep them. Continue to give them peace today. Help them to rest. In Jesus' name.